What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Bad Christian Podcast. This will serve as your official reminder. If you remember last week, we played an Emory song, a new Emory song. There are seven new Emory songs that are complete and mixed and mastered for our upcoming album. The album comes out in about a year. But if you're in Emory land, you have them now. It's less than a year, but like nine months from now is the release date. Seven of the songs are done. And all the Emeryland members are enjoying them and streaming them and playing them at parties and like listening to it when they fall asleep and showing their friends. It's great. They're, it's great. And the music is good. It's better than anything. And it's available now if you just join Emeryland. So you were meaning to do it, but you forgot. So this is your reminder. Do it now. Just pause the podcast or whatever. Come back and then enjoy this wonderful episode. Which is brought to you by Joybird. Joybird makes one-of-a-kind furniture that's crafted to your unique taste, and you can get 25% off your first order by going to joybird.com slash badchristian25. And then you enter the code badchristian25 at checkout. Let's go. Oh, hell yeah, God showed up. I don't give a shit what I put in my body. You don't ever fucking talk to me that way. <laughs> so if you've never done oral, then you're extra virgin. No, girl. It's my pleasure. I showed my dad my penis when I was 25 years old. You don't get more honest than that. Three, two, one. Is you thick? Is you fine? Is that ass? Bouncing in time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is you fine? Is you fine? Is that ass? Is that ass? Bouncing in time. In time. Oh, now, Matt and Reva, that is what pops into my head when I'm riding in my van, my Sienna 2006 Toyota Sienna van when I'm by myself. That's these, your voice memo from this morning? I just, these songs just... Come to my head and I have to get them out. So that's a voice memo while I was by myself on the way to the gym. I have so many of these that I can't even believe it. And they just pop into my head and I don't know why. I don't know if it's the music I'm listening to. I don't know what, but I just have these thoughts and songs I just need to get out. You know what I mean? Like it's just my You're art. An artist. You can't, I'm, I'm an you artist. Can't what are you going to do? It's just expression. It can't, you yeah. can't, what are you supposed to do? Bottle it up. Right. Don't hate Keep the artist. It inside. Hate the game. Don't that's share it with other people. I know. You, I, just, that, I just had to get it out. You, that's a that's an interesting thing to me to think of because I, I, I have that sensation of some people say keep that shit to yourself though you know what I mean they sure do I, I don't, don't like have that people. impulse yeah I don't have that impulse <laughs> I I really get, have a strong sense uh, if I'm trying to understand what really drives me as I get older it feels to me like there's a lot of stuff between my ears and I don't know what good it is there right so I need to get it out. I have things, I think things, I might know some things, and far be it from me to keep them to myself. That doesn't I, seem right. I agree. It <laughs> I doesn't do me no out. good in there. It hurts me if it stays in right. there too much. Right. So I don't know if it's useful to anybody else. It may not be. That's not right. the point. And I also notice a lot of times I'm talking just to hear it, just to hear it. People say, you love to hear yourself talk. Well, yeah, I, I need to hear, I have a thought, and then I'm curious what that thought sounds like in words. Exactly. And I want to hear it. Right. And then I hear it, hear it. And yep. I say, is that good or bad? 
but I don't know until I hear it in my ears. It, but I have to say it out of my is, mouth yeah. to hear it in my ears to know if I should say it or not. Right. Do I just paint the whole room or do I put a couple colors on the wall to see what the fuck they look like? I know. Right. You get a paint you know set, you get a sample. I, I, you know, I don't need a sample of what my thoughts are. I don't I'm get a sample com- of my thoughts. Yeah, I'm not committing to see Miss Green and Satin Finish and buying enough to do 700 square feet until exactly. I see what it looks like on the wall. Exactly. Good Lord. I got to hear I got to test it out. Give it a little bit of legs to see what the hell's <laughs> going on. Maybe I, it's a bad idea. You know how many times I hear it and I go, oh, God, that ain't, that ain't no good. Do you think that is drives a lot? The purest art, probably though, is that type of thing. Though, I mean, maybe you visualize a scene, like Stanley Kubrick visualizes a scene, and he just has to get it out, and it costs millions of dollars, and has to. It requires a lot to get that out. I agree. I have so many of these though. My low barrier to entry. I like my real goal is I want to do these shorts, and then uh, they, they usually come to me in the morning, and then by the end of the day, I want to have like real uh, beats and scents and keys and all that stuff and make make a short little songs like this well toby that's not a pipe dream and let me tell you i mean now that you say that (laughs) let me tell you how to accomplish it don't you go getting my hopes up with this i'm going to get your hopes up (laughs) toby wants to write a hip-hop verse or chorus really every day and then see what happens now the reason that isn't hard is because your voice memo with a little bit of beatbox to it gives the idea now i could easily spend an hour and a half, like the Daily Dose, same thing. You just made something, and then right. I made the track, and it was your song, and you know that took yeah. me three hours to make. I could do that every day. Now, I don't have three hours every day, right? But somebody out there that listens to Ooh. the podcast does and knows Somebody's how to use a Fruity Loop step sequencer, so it sure would do. probably be happy to collaborate with you. So you just need to get ten volunteers that like to remix or make beats Ooh. and you drop them a voice memo every day at 10 and then you'll get back a few versions of it every right. day and it'll be done and then you could sing vocals on it and people will be so happy to collaborate with you that way and it then feels, you can make just yeah. give it away and this sounds, practice this sounds so wonderful on my end for the those people it feels like the people that had to work at Facebook and sift through all the bad shit <laughs> get rid of <laughs> no they'll like it though people want to collaborate and what's I mean that's why I like collaborating with you because you'll generate an idea and I'll hear it and go oh I know what's good about that and what's wrong with it and what it yeah. needs but I didn't have that impulse till I heard your idea that's halfway there or right. almost all the way there or ooh it's all the way there let me participate or you know and so that collaboration's fun and I think other people would be satisfied in it and it doesn't have to cost anything, and it'd be highly productive. And then you'd have hundreds of them, and the ones mm. that were good, you could, you'd, if you released them all, the ones that had more plays or streams over time, you would know were the good ideas. Oh, this so you've wonderful. practiced, you've farmed good ideas, you figured out what beats feel good. Uh, probably a style develops; it yeah. enriches the world, and it's free. So why not do it? Okay. Anybody out there feel like that's a good idea, Toby? Ooh. You have to have an idea. You don't have to do it every day, but just have. Four lines and a beat, mouth it, say it, and then yeah. see what ha- then evolve it over time. You might get good at it. Ooh, right? Yeah, like that, that's how fun. you get good at things. You find a system that would work. Be, be pretty cool. All right. So that's uh, how could thank you for that? helping me with my new career. Yeah, it's been fun pa- pa- podcasting with y'all. We're going uh, EDM. Uh, yep. I'll see y'all later. I uh, how do you, how would you want right. people that wanted to help you though? Who could? What do you want to message? Let's try it. Um, they can email me at reva at badchristian.com. <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> Thank you, Reva. 
Reva, okay, you look, are the buffer. You are the the middle person that just makes it all work. And I, mm-hmm. I and you're an unsung hero. Yes, I really appreciate that. Reva <laughs> is very quiet today because she's in the loudest place in the history of the world. Yes, uh, but it's a, it's a coffee shop. Coffee shops, man. They, they you get some coffee, you start get that that drug caffeine gets you, and you start talking a lot. I, I say that a lot of people know Reva's value because they see it, and I do think we talk about it, and I see people say it. So I will resist Reva being an unsung hero and say that she oh, is, yeah. in fact, a hero, but a sung Sung. one. Yeah. So once you go ahead and sing that she's a hero in a line, and then it'll be official yeah. that she's a sung hero. You are the person that everyone knows they can count on. No one ever <laughs> gets hurt. By you not doing your job. <laughs> so, and then when I, that beat drops, and then she gets a little hop in her. St- oh, no, sorry. I went a little too far with that. <laughs> There's the intro. There you go. Yep. <laughs> okay, so summer is about over, and that's okay because what's way better than summer is the fall, especially if you're in one of those warm places and it's back to school. And it's football season, and maybe you have, you know, maybe you've got a really cool house here and a yard. It, it's time to enjoy it, relax, and you can do that with Joy Bird. Joy Bird makes awesome furniture, and whether you're throwing oh, yeah. a backyard barbecue, an ice cream social, quiet night with the family, you want furniture that feels uniquely you. And Joy Bird empowers you to create the furniture and the space that brings you joy and keeps those summer vibes flowing all year long. You can go well into fall. Make yourself an outdoor space. Count it as square footage in your mind of livable space. It's cheaper than building a room. You buy a couch, get an outdoor rug, maybe something to cover it. Very cheap, very awesome, and Joybird is a way to do it. With Joybird, you get one-of-a-kind furniture crafted to your unique taste. You can turn ideas into reality. They've got hundreds of styles and options. If you want an aquatic blue sofa, good for you. A love seat that's completely red, fine. they got rich buttery leather to plush velvet. You know, all, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be custom. It's quality, handcrafted furniture. Each Joybird piece is made by hand with care and precision using high-quality hardwood. That's a big deal. It's real hardwood that they use. Responsibly sourced materials, and they fit your exact specifications. They got a 365-day home trial, so you can skip the furniture store, which is huge, and bring it the showroom home. Sit on it. Sleep on it. Break it in. If you don't love it, you can return it. Hassle-free. In-home delivery, they'll even remove the packing materials and free returns within two weeks of delivery. So, see how Joybird can help you design your dream space. Make make furniture your own at joybird.com slash badchristian25. Create the furniture that brings you joy today at joybird.com forward slash badchristian25. Go to joybird.com slash badchristian25 and receive an exclusive offer for 25% off your first order. Again, using the code BADCHRISTIAN25. Okay, let's move to a more serious note. Oh, already? I was just, well, I was victimized a, a few minutes ago. What? Are you yeah, okay? I mean, yeah, I'm okay. I don't think Everybody really, in America is worried about you right now. No, it wasn't a big deal, but I did feel that it was inappropriate okay. and that I was, you know, as a part of a... And, I, and people are going to think I'm being an asshole here, but I'm, I'm not. But... I, you, you know, be. I would consider, from my point of view, it to some degree, for, that I am a marginalized person in this situation, yeah. and then I was punched down upon, and this ha- does happen a lot, and I never speak up about it, yeah, but it does happen. Um, 
what happened today is I just went to get coffee uh, yep. across the street. I understand and that. I got the coffee I get. We've been on tour a couple of weeks. And the lady behind the counter said to me, mm-hmm. uh, oh, you haven't been in in a while. I said, you know, I thought it was no nice that she knows. Yes, I said, I've been out of town. She, uh, and she said, because I really missed your southern accent. Oh, God. And, and oh, you know, made fun Lord. of the way that, that I talk. And not it's not just the way that I talk, of course. That's, you know, the south. And it, I'm not really joking when I say the tone of the way the people of the south and talk. Right that way are thought of is not high <laughs> it's not highly thought of and i'll, I'll meet people a lot of say you know it happens to be it, it happens occasionally i'm just letting people know it's at least rude but i don't really care it doesn't, obviously doesn't really right. bother me but it isn't not it is pretty common for people to go uh you know nice to meet yeah. you and i talk to them they go I say, I'm Matt Carter. Nice to meet you. They go, well, hi, Matt. It's nice to meet you, too. They, I know. And they don't understand. I don't know if they think I'm joking, like I put on a pretend w- way to talk. I know. I don't know, but I, I think that's a little bit weird. Like, it, imagine me meeting a Chinese person and doing the same thing I with know. a facial expression or what, you know, like, right. I don't Somebody know that language. that makes yes. sense. Yeah. yeah, I know. And so you adopt their mannerisms and, their, you know, pull your eyes back and you, you can imagine... That that wouldn't be nice. Right. And I'm telling you, Southern accents are somewhat frowned upon. And that's, I'm sensitive to that in the sense that it's always been an advantage. You know, I've always had a Southern accent and maybe I ham it up and people think it's charming. That's always been true. But since the 2016 election, it's not true. (laughs) It changed. I mean, in 2015, it was different, is what I'm telling you. Before Trump, your accent was awesome. Well, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. I'm not not really claiming anything here, but I'm making some point that, you know, white men in the South are not, that's not, I feel like I need to put distance between me and them. Oh, I see. And I I moved out here because I'm not one of them. I mean, right, right, right. I'm not, it's a liability, you know. And, and I do think it's funny to kind of make fun of that. And that lady was sweet, of course. I know she likes me. I mean, that was the point. Nonetheless, I point that out as mm, I, I wasn't gonna, I wouldn't correct her there. But you know, I think that's not the best way to be consistent. At least now, there's so um, there's a long list of so many times you wouldn't do that to a person. But the southern ones, I know. like, uh, uh, yeah, 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 he yeah, can yeah, handle it. She she but, she, now she looked at you and goes, oh, that, he, he, this will be funny. I can cut up yeah. with him with this, and it's not a big deal. But and it's not, but right. you're just saying no, like it's just funny. It it's, isn't. It's unique that the southern accent, everybody can just, hey y'all, how you doing? Right. Oh my mm-hmm. god. And it's it's always terrible. People think they do great southern accents. Yeah, and it's so just funny. all the it, it kills me in TV shows when some northerner or California person does a southern accent. It just just stay away from it. Just the same way you, you, you can't do a Russian accent like in Chernobyl TV show. Oh, just, yep. You just stay away you're from not, it. You're not. You're going to sound you, dumb. You, you yeah. sound so stupid. Now, I know you think I already say well, That's the problem is they think I sound dumb. Right. So when they try to do a southern accent, they're simply doing an impression of a <laughs> dumb person. That's not how I talk. Those aren't the words I use. Right. not the way I say anything. But you think I'm dumb. And yes. so you're going to talk, you're going to say, I'm going to do a person of dumb Southern I, person. I like know. it's more about the dumb than the right. diphthong vowel, double vowel sound that I make. Right. 
So that you kind of tips what you think a little bit. But uh, it, and it's really crazy to me too because accents and pronunciation, all those things. I mean, they're they seem to be a big deal. But you weren't there the other night. But when we were, I think it was when we were in Las Vegas, and we were. I don't remember what it was. We're drinking LaCroix or something else, and somebody in the group pulls this one. I don't remember if it was JT or somebody from Hawthorne Heights or something. They said, why do you pronounce it that way? It's probably JT because that's his voice. <laughs> <laughs> that's me making fun of JT. He said, why do you say – he says, because uh, I think Matt from Hawthorne Heights' wife is French. Yeah. And so somebody was going on and on about that's not how you pronounce it, LaCroix. All right. Do you know how to pronounce it? LaCroix or something like that. LaCroix. Yeah, LaCroix. That's right. That's right. And you should say it that way. Right. And if you don't, that's bad. You're bad. You're right. not respectful of the other culture. You know, that whole thing, which I think is the stupidest thing I have ever heard and is not accurate at all that you should pronounce it the way they pronounce it because that's how they pronounce it. And people do this all the time, and I find it to be a power trip. I think it's people get carried away with liking to correct people and be in the position of someone who corrects somebody. Right. And that's why it bothers me when somebody tries to tell you how you need to say something. I don't know why, but that seems it, it's bothersome to me. And I would say it's probably not it's, it's it's super a double standard in this way. And you hear you know, you hear people go out of their way to pronounce things correctly, to sound smart or to not say something bad to a group that's bad, you know? Do you know what yep. I'm talking about? It's yes. a real sensitivity, yeah. and people like to correct other people, so other people are real careful, and people want to pronounce the things right so it doesn't show the thing I'm talking about. Well, like when you do the Southern accent, you're, you know, you've shown that you think we're dumb. Okay. Right. So everybody's afraid to do that with Guatemala or whatever else. Yeah. <laughs> so right. that, that's kind of shown there. I mean, have you ever heard anybody... And here's my response to anybody that says, you need to pronounce this this way. I say, no, I don't. Because I've never heard anybody on NPR go, hi, this is Hannah Jaffrey Walt reporting on the court, on the, at the courtroom here in Birmingham, Alabama. Right. <laughs> That's how we say it. We say Alabama. Right. How many times have you heard somebody on the news talk about South Carolina, where you're from? I don't know. That's how we say it. What are you talking about, South Carolina? Fuck off. That's wrong. Don't say that. Say South Carolina like we do. Clemson. <laughs> it's Clemson with a P. That's how we say it. Coca-Cola. <laughs> That's how we say Coca-Cola. That's how that we say, how it. say it. Oh. So if you if you say it different than that, what's going on? I know. La Croix. I know. If I say La Croix, it's almost me being a jerk. It's stupid. I, yeah, I'm yeah. doing it to make fun of people. You say it how you say it. Right. That's also, the, I, think, so, I think La Croix was even starting like Wisconsin or something. It's not even <laughs> yeah, right. they just named it that. <laughs> Like, yeah, probably, I think so. I think it's from La Crosse, Wisconsin, or something yeah. like that. But <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> but I mean, you, you, nobody does that for the South. You don't. You don't respect the way we talk. You're not, not going to pronounce it the way we pronounce things, even no. if we made them up. Also, you so know what really makes me mad. Here. You know what really makes me mad about the whole thing is what did what do people in Seattle sound like? You can't even do an accent. Or they don't oh, they, sound like, okay. they just don't have they anything. They die laughing if you tell them about their accent and deny that they have one. But they do. They say I some words funny. And what they really don't understand Milk, is I guess, hundreds maybe. of years ago, nobody talked the way they talk. Right. Nobody. So how is it not an accent? Yeah, that's, yeah, In the 1600s, right. who talked but, that way? Who right. spoke the English the right way that the people on the West Coast that are on the news? Who spoke that way? 300 years ago. And Nobody. then who deviated from what? We know it's English, right? 
And right. the, people mistake my accent for English accent every day. Are you from right. England? Are you from Australia? Are you from South yeah. Africa? No, I'm from Sakalana. Right. <laughs> but you don't know the difference. And I speak closer to the real way English is spoken than you do, clearly. You have a new invented way of speaking that is neutralized, boring, not good, invented, and it's an accent. And it's the one that newscasters and people on the West Coast use. Everybody else, people in Philly talk more like English. Yeah. People in Minnesota talk more, it's more like right. everything is more character that all comes out of England, which is even more character. So a Southern accent is closer to an English accent, less of an accent. So I have less of an accent than everybody else, my opinion. Ours is more distinguished and it's more recognizable, all those things. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't, if, I, if you ask me to do a Seattle accent, nobody, I don't even know what I would do. Only, yeah, only just thing stand I know is there and be a real boring instead of milk. But that's about yeah, it. Yeah, milk. They say bag, like bag. They say bag funny, like yeah. bag yeah. a little bit. Pillow. They say pillow. pillow. I don't know why. But it's all I, I mean, silly. and if you, if you tell them they say that, they They're immediately so stop saying it. They go, no, I don't. I say bag. <laughs> they, they'll immediately eliminate it. Because they're right. scared to have, <laughs> they're scared to have any expression. You know, it's like a, it's a afraid to be something kind of a thing. All you so wanted was a cup in. of coffee, and then all it was a cup of coffee, and then look what they did to you. <laughs> it's just, it's just crazy. Oh goodness gracious! Thank you for indulging me on that one. Won't you fly know what I'm listening to, but do you know what you're listening to? Uh, good friends of ours in Devil Wears Prada, and this song is called Lines of Your Hands. It's the newest single from the Devil Wears Prada. We've known these dudes for, gosh, a long time. Love their music, love the band, great people. Mike's been on the podcast, so cool. Lines of Your Hands is the first single from the band's new record, The Act, which comes out October 11th, right in time, right before uh, Halloween. Oh, man, I love the fall. And it's out on Solid State Records on October 11th, I said. The Devil Wears Prada will be on a uh, full U.S. tour this fall with Norma Jean and Gideon. So head over to their website for tickets. Make sure to follow the band on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to music to make sure you don't miss any of that new music that's coming. The act is out everywhere October 11th, so pre-order it now at 
tdwpband.com. That's tdwpband.com. Right on. Okay, so let's hear this interview we've been sitting on a while. I've been excited to share it because yeah. I thought it went really well. But Jacob Marshall is the drummer for May. He's more than just a drummer. Some of the whole band and the name and everything comes from some concepts that he had and interests and a spiritual experience even that we talk about in this episode. So he's got a real cool story. Uh, and he talks a lot and- about LSD. He talks about psychedelic <laughs> spiritual experience, forming May. It's good stuff. He's got a real mind on him and does some really interesting things in the world. Uh, and so I thought it was a good conversation. Everybody seemed to like it at the con. But yeah, you're right. I think when you talk about LSD, people kind of they don't yeah. tune out. They no, just they don't. don't. Like, yeah, if you they, notice, have you seen people tune out before when yeah, people you know, talk? Yeah, I don't want to hear the LSD. When you're talking again, about huh? when you do LSD, <laughs> people don't tune out. So right. that's probably later on in the thing. But the, the whole story is kind of comprehensive in a way that I thought I think is really really nice. And Jacob's a balanced person that seems to have absorbed a lot of different things and stay functional. I think that's interesting. So interesting character. The guys in May are great. We had a terrific time at the conference and this is yet one more of the good things that happened there that we've been wanting to share with you. And today's that day. So we won't come back at the end of this episode. We'll just let it end there because that'd be, I don't know, awkward, I guess. But if you want to hear more Bad Christian, if mm-hmm. you'd like to go to the next level, it's called mm-hmm. the BC Club and you know that, you can go to thebcclub.com and join our community You'll get extra episodes that we make every day, rest of the days of the week. But more importantly, you'll you know you'll make some friends. I think we got some people that have real lifelong friendships in there, and I don't know if we're not on our multiple sets of relationships that people oh, have had, so if many. not, and some marriages. So, so if you're single, now's the time. This is this is better than Match.com or it's better than uh, E-Harmony, Mingle. Oh, better than all of that. It's about the same as Christian Mingle. Yeah, it's like post. Right. It's in fact. I think we're going to change the name of it from the BC Club to Post Christian Mingle. Bad Christian Mingle. <laughs> yeah, bad Christian Mingle. There you I'm go. I'm sure that I think that subgroup exists right. or something. Yeah. So, all right. Here's Jacob Marshall and us at. Well, the, let me. Hey, Matt. Before we go, can I just list a couple of people who are in that club? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The you supporters. Got it. All right. We got Matthew bad Hunter Mingle. Adkins, Tyler Young, Christina Gove, Danielle Danielle Elliott, Preston West. Wes Irwin, Lindsey Rose, Aaron Love, Justin Luther, and Lance Crawford. And yeah, I think all of those people are might even date or be married to each other now. I probably you think they could that, maybe do group marriage or something. Yeah, I think there's like a group mean, marriage subgroup. We have in polyamory the group. Oh, yeah. There's so it's many. It's fine. It's yeah. fine. Uh, yeah, it's fine. It, it always works out. It's fine. It's just fine. I, hey, I'm not telling anybody what to do or not to do. That's what yeah, I've I'm learned. Open minded on polyamory, uh, yep. LSD, hey, you, you name it. You do you, literally, whatever. <laughs> just, just join the club. All right, let's bring on. Let's bring him on. We have here Jacob Marshall, the drummer of May. Did you enjoy the May show last night? I thought, I thought it was terrific. I haven't seen you guys in a long time. It's been a minute. Can you remember last time we played a show together? I know we've done some, but it's been I a do long too. Time. It's been at least twelve years. Yeah, I think that has. Um, okay, so you guys know Jacob as the drummer for may but that's a very extremely oversimplified uh you know description of, of who this guy is so i'm going to give you a quick overview of how i think about him and we'll kind of go through a story you know how you know i've said this to you guys before i'm a person that has very little goals or understanding of what i'm doing i just 
I'm always just doing what I'm doing, and then there's things come out of it. That's kind of the way I look at it. Jacob's kind of the opposite. Jacob, um, from a relatively early age, he's going to talk about in a second, had a spiritual experience, and then that plays into what he's been doing for the rest of his life and going to continue to do, may be in just one of those things as it all kind of seems to tie in. And so we're going to hear about his experience and where he's going and where he's headed, which I find personally very fascinating. I think that you will. Two, um, Jacob, you know, I would like to start these interviews by trying to say who the person is and where they are today. And uh, I'll tell you this about Jacob. He's doing stuff in neuroscience and art and stuff at this really high level that in, in, the, in the world. He lives in Brooklyn. You know what I mean? He's like one of those, we're lowbrow people. These are like high society. What, what do they call them? The elites? Are you an elite? Is that what it is? <laughs> but, Definitely not. I'm from Virginia. <laughs> no, okay, but but seriously, what I'm trying to say here, J- Jacob just won an award at Sundance Film Festival. It's called the Spirit of Windrunner Award. And can you tell him what that, what that, the description of that award? Yeah. See what I mean? Who wins that kind of award? <laughs> uh, yeah. So Windrider is the part of Sundance um, where basically the art and the community impact collide. And so a lot of the films that are being shown at Sundance, like you don't go there to get happy. You go there to get punched in the spirit because people have done deep dives into the problems that are facing the world. And so you end up in this really beautiful way having directors and, and you know the subjects of a lot of their documentaries or their films um, there, present. Like this is the first time a film they've been working on for two to sometimes ten years is being shown. And so there's a context for the community who's being affected by that story or who has been affected by that story to engage with the larger community. And so it's kind of the place where art and social impact collide. And so it was an honor to be recognized in that capacity because I think art holds within it the potential for change. And to the extent that we have that conversation, you know, the inspiration behind the art becomes real and it becomes actioned and it becomes actually a form of medicine. And you're also doing neuroscience research at the intersection of art and neuroscience. And you're not a neuroscientist, but you're yeah. partnered up and doing that active research too. It's something yeah. you spend time doing. Yeah. So there's a, there's a longer story behind that uh, that we can unpack a little we'll, bit. We'll get back yeah, to it. I'm just giving sure. the overview yeah. of this person in the chair yeah. right now. <laughs> um, and this is where we'll get back to here. And yeah. also for currently right now, how do you identify spiritually if somebody asks you? Uh, full of questions and on the journey very much. Yeah. it's uh, The spiritual dimension of life is something that for me is very much first and foremost in my orientation but I find that a lot of the language uh, that is available to us is so limiting uh, that it actually ends up being counterproductive. And so for me, the way I like to approach spiritual conversation is actually less with language entirely. And I believe that by creating a context where you can have an artistic experience that actually doesn't fit easily into words, you're actually opening up somebody's capacity to appreciate what spirituality is because it was always meant to be something deeper than words. And we have a knowing when we know something, but we can't quite articulate it. I think that's actually what spirituality is. Like it's a resonance. It's a recognition 
that the melody of our individual life is in harmony with the larger universe life, you know, the symphony that all of that is, we are a part of that. So again, to me, that language, um, and I think I said this before, but there's a version of me five years ago, at least, if not more recently, then would just think, well, that is some high-minded woo-woo shit. Do you know? Like, that's, Look so at my go, beard. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> you know, but I, I mean, I, I've found, you know, and I've, I've yeah. known you and been around you over time and, and thought, man, that Jacob, he's out there. And it's, it's interesting to see where you are. And really what's happened more is I've come more this direction. Now those things that you're saying start to make sense and all that stuff. So let's back up now because your start to get to where you are starts the same as many people here in an evangelical home doing worship music and stuff and thinking this is, this is what there is to do in the world. And then there's a, quite a journey to get here. So let's, let's do that. Tell us, tell us about you growing up or, or you know, how, and up to your first exp- experience that we were just talking about upstairs. Yeah, I I really appreciate the space that you've created here for the conversation that we're having. Um, I definitely was raised in an evangelical household. Uh, I talked a little about this yesterday on the panel, but um, I didn't rebel against God growing up. I actually bought in. I was very much in love with God. I had spiritual experiences from a young age. I remember being five years old and having this... In what tradition or denomination? Non-denominational. Yeah, it was part of, you know, in a sense, what was the Jesus movement and um, and kind of a, a spiritual resurgence within Christianity in many ways. There was like a vibrancy in this, you know, kind of youth culture finding itself um, through Christianity, in particular non-denominational Christianity. So that was my context for growing up, and my, my family was... You know, musical. Um, my dad was in a band for 10 years, so my first four years were spent on the road with his band. Uh, so it was around music from a young age and, and appreciated the way that music was a conduit for genuine spiritual experience. And I think that as a, as a foundation actually really did help shape me. And, and to this day, like I appreciate that very much. Um, and, you know, I worked really hard in the years that a lot of people are like kind of partying and figuring it out. And I actually trained with USA Gymnastics for 10 years and got a, uh, an appointment to the Naval Academy. And I was like on a really specific track to just try to succeed and, and have some sense of stability. Cause as artists, <laughs> we kind of live in the other side, you know, the chaos in some ways, being an outsider is what allows you to have something to say to, you know, the community that you're from. And I had a very, very clear spiritual sense. I was about 17 years old, just gotten this, you know, letter in the mail that says, congratulations, here's your life. And uh, I just knew that it wasn't my path, but it was all I had worked for. And so to be in a moment where you kind of have everything you, you've worked for, uh, and to know within your spiritual self that this isn't the path that's meant for you is a, a disconcerting moment because what else do you do? And so for me, uh, I knew that I probably wouldn't have the the strength, I guess, to you know put that away and not come back to it because uh, there was no plan B at this point. And so I tore it up. I tore it up and I threw it away and I 
called the coach at the Naval Academy for gymnastics. You know, been in a two year process together. I was like, I'm sorry, this isn't. You just knew, just knew that that was, you know, but you didn't know it much before that. It wasn't a, Oh no, it was literally not until that moment. But what was the experience? The spiritual experience you had was. Well, so coming out initially, it was just like this, you know, as a musician, when you hit a wrong chord, it's like the wrong chord was struck and my whole body just knew it. And I think our bodies know way more than we tend to give them credit for. You know, we tend to think that our mind is running the show, but actually our bodies are incredibly sophisticated, you know, machines for telling us, you know, what's, what's safe, what's not safe, like where we should be going, where we shouldn't. And so, um, that night after tearing up the paperwork, I went into the gym and I had a career ending injury. And so everything kind of went away anyway, uh, that night. And so that kind of left me in this place of, you know, I didn't feel like it had been taken from me. Like I felt like it had been surrendered in a way. And, um, so there's no like bitterness or anything, but it was definitely like the period at the end of that chapter of life. And so kind of coming out of that, you know, because there was no plan B, I really didn't know what to do. And I went from working very hard all the time to having kind of a sense of space and a sense of like, you know, and it was almost disconcerting to feel Mm -hmm. that right it's like when you know what your mission is every day it's very easy to show up and do it and when you don't that's that's a a more complicated space and so one day after probably about a year of you know just working different little jobs and trying to figure it out I went and I decided that I was not going to um, I was not going to leave this day without a sense of clarity where I was going. Right. And this is like that transition time between high school and college. And, and so I went to the spot in Virginia by the James river and the way that that river flows, it kind of flows from the North Western part of the state all the way down to the Southeastern, which is where we're from. And it opens up into the Chesapeake Bay, which opens up into the Atlantic. And so by this particular spot along the river, you know, on our embankment, we're looking across about five miles of water to the other, the other shore. It's just a beautiful place. And so I just sat there in silence. I didn't really know what meditation was, but for me, there's an orientation of stillness, of receptivity, of listening, and of genuinely wanting whatever God's purpose for my life was to be revealed. Like there was, there was not a sense of, um, again, rebellion away. It was like, how can I serve? Like, how can I let my life be a part of whatever, you know, your will is, uh, in the world and how can I be of service in that way? And so for about five hours or so, I was just sitting there by the river, you know, the whole afternoon came and went and the sun was setting and, uh, it was the most beautiful sunset I think I've ever seen. And out of, the the depth of the color of that sunset, um, again, it's probably like five or six hours in, um, I had, you know, for lack of a better word, a, a vision of sorts. And um, it was it was an experience that I, to this day, consider probably the most meaningful spiritual experience I've ever had. Uh, but there was no context for me to have it. What does that mean? So basically out of, if you can imagine, uh, just by show of hands, who all has seen a photo, you know, from Hubble of the nebulas in space, 
right? So it's kind of this cloud-like light, this viscous, beautiful, like swirling color, this this sense of like texture of light and, and form. And that's probably the closest thing I can describe to what this looked like. And again, imagine something like that just kind of manifesting, you know, way out in front of you and slowly approaching you. And it got to about probably 50 feet away from me and it just stopped and hovered. And then it rushed down and washed over me. And when it washed over me, not only could I see it, because I'm inside of it at this point, but I can hear it and I can feel it on my skin. I can smell it, I can taste it. All of my senses at once were experiencing like this cord of beauty, right? So in every one of the languages of my senses, beauty was what was being communicated in its purest form. Cord's a pretty clever way to put that. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, I think, a helpful way to describe it because it was all separate notes, but it was all part of one thing that in and of itself, the whole was more than the sum of its parts, right? And I sat in that for like an hour and a half. It was about a 90-minute experience. Uh, And it was drug-free. I've been asked many times. (laughs) That part came later. (laughs) We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, No, but so so having an experience like that, when you kind of go into a place of prayer and meditation, and all of a sudden you get this crazy color, sound, fragrance experience, uh, you know, the way I, I felt leaving it you know, it was very, it was very gentle. Like the way that it kind of left was as, you know, surprisingly simple um, as it could possibly be. It was just kind of like the color faded, the sound is like faded, like the last note of a symphony fades to silence before the applause rushes in. You know, there's just this kind of dissipation. As I found myself sitting there in the dark, you know, just wondering what was that, and. Have a sense, and I was like, I mean, you're just a 17 year old, yeah, evangelical kid, yeah. So it was like a Jesus cloud or something. Yeah, exactly. And I (laughs) exactly, I'd read enough about the uh, the temple of David and the, you know, the Selahs and those moments where the cloud would descend into the temple to where, like, spiritually, that was kind of the first connection I was able to to make. And subsequently, which is fascinating, I've spent some time with Jewish rabbis. and they talk about Moses's experience with the burning bush. And when you actually translate that out of Hebrew, um, a lot gets lost in the translation because the language they actually use for that moment was that the fire of the burning bush was actually this fragrant, like multi-sensory, you know, expression and experience. And so, so we have, I've heard cord, I've heard multi-sensory, where yep. are we going with this? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, no. So where we went was, if you think about like, um, you know, just a journey through life, right? I had questions and I went to the river that day to kind of sit, uh, with my questions and wait for answers. And what I got in that experience was an answer, but it was to a question I wasn't smart enough to ask yet. Right. So I now knew something through my body about the way that our senses work and had this profound experience of indescribable beauty, but I had no framework for how to get from my current place of understanding to that knowing. Or even just to interface it with language. Exactly. 
Exactly. There were no words. I call that the space that words have not yet been invited to, where you know something, but you can't necessarily reduce it to a language that lets me share mm-hmm. the fullness of that experience. Right. And that is a very, there is a very, <laughs> the evangelical teen culture is a, the most piss poor place ever for such <laughs> Such things, you know, it's everything is labeled. Everything is in a system. Yeah. Everything is in a box. Everything, we have answers. You have a 17-year-old, we have answers. That's the, that's the, that's the operation. That's how it works. Yeah, so. and I think that informed my mindset going into the experience, which is why this was so particularly potent, mm-hmm. is because it shattered the sense that I had, you know, a box to put it in. Right. So we were talking backstage too about the terminology of of box and and you know and you you I I, bet I was struggling to with this concept I was trying to think of it yesterday how and just get so irritated with the box and put it in a box okay you know it's just that's a worn out kind of tired thing and you just said something upstairs that I thought was much more helpful that seems to apply here yeah I, I you know I always thought um, when you look at the metaphors that are used in scripture. Um, you know, we start as a child, the child of God, and we kind of end as the bride, right? So there's this implied macro level growth that happens. And the way that you treat a child, the way that you engage with a child is just fundamentally different than you do with a person who you consider to be an equal, who you want to be married to. Uh, And that implies a kind of growth over time, you know? And so I've always seen this, this tension play out between the more open aspects of growth and development within Christianity versus the more structured, rigid, dogmatic aspects, you know? And I'm, I'm not a person who's going to say either or is the right way. I really do think that it's kind of both and, but it's kind of when one is applied yes. versus the other, right? And so the way I, I had my deconstruction experience was actually not out of, again, like a place of pain or rebellion or... It was about actually reading science books, reading books about physics and cosmology and and starting to really fall in love with creation as this kind of artistic expression of the creator and being told that the questions I was asking were actually, you know, the problem. It became apparent to you that the la- even the language we yeah. use is severely limited for the things we're trying to actually talk about and do. Exactly. Maybe it's good for a four-year-old, and we're still trying to... Yeah. You know what I mean? To me, it seems that way. It's like, God boiled down to this is exactly what you should tell a four-year-old. Exactly. That's, That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. That's totally fine. I, yep. tell, I say very reduced things to my children that is just above the level that I think that they can understand, yeah. and I will adjust that forever. I will always yeah. shoot for just above what I think they can grasp. That's Not perfect. Instead of just, yes. well, you stay here, and at some point, it, the structure and the systematization and the reductions are the tail wagging the dog or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And the metaphor I found to be helpful is the idea of a ceiling, right? So at a certain point, a ceiling is protecting you from the elements. Like it's the thing that keeps the rain off of you, right? When you're vulnerable, when you're trying to rest and sleep. At a certain point though, if you can't grow beyond that ceiling, it becomes a prison. It's a limit, yeah. Yes. And so for me, breaking through that ceiling was my deconstruction. But what happened is that the pieces of that ceiling, as they shattered and broke, I was able to actually look down at and put back together in a way over time that it reformed as a foundation from which to grow towards the infinite. Mm-hmm. And that's, 
you know, it's not what you hear a lot because a lot of deconstruction stories, and it just happens that way, a lot of them do come out of pain. That seems to be the more common thing. And this well-grounded, yeah. curiosity-driven, you know, introspect, esoteric, I suppose is the word for it, that is less common kind of a thing. But it's a quite an yeah. interesting way, way of looking at the, you know, because de- deconstruction gets labeled as like negative or some yeah. little dumb phase you go through. But it's kind of more than that, it seems like. Significantly more than that. I think the the deconstruction is the process that allows you to actually authentically engage with divinity, with, you know, the, the things beyond us. Like you can't actually fully appreciate that unless you get to a point where you recognize the limitations of your own rationale, right? And for us to think that we can label, name, frame God in any kind of system or language of our own capacity or understanding is basically like thinking that, you know, (laughs) we're sipping a glass of water and thinking that that ocean water, let's say it's ocean water, right? And thinking that that ocean water is the entire ocean. And it's like, well, no, you've got a glass and it's full of ocean water, but there's actually a lot, there's infinitely more than we can grasp. Okay, so... What happens next in your story? You have this experience. Yeah. This is the context it's in. You're looking for new things. What yeah. Happens? So I did go to college, and um, I decided to make my experience in education the best attempt I could to understand what had happened. So I actually created a major in school uh, where I looked from every different academic discipline's perspective on the experience that we as humans have of beauty because that experience had manifest itself as beauty. And again, not with content. There was no words in that experience. There's no images or symbols in the color. Like it was this pure expression of sound and light and texture and fragrance. And yet it communicated more to me in that moment than anything else ever had and perhaps ever will. And so, um, During that education, I actually started to find some language. I was really surprised to learn that there's a condition uh, called synesthesia where, you know, certain people's brains are wired in a way that allows one of their senses to express itself in the language of our other senses. So there's a percentage of the population that hears music and they actually not only hear sound, but they see color or it'll activate sense of fragrance. It's like, wow, that's fascinating. Like that's, that's an interesting kind of jumping off point. And I started to discover, you know, because it was interdisciplinary, I was seeing insights from different schools of thought that hadn't necessarily been connected to each other in a way that was as meaningful as I was able to, you know, see them in light of this experience. Uh, and so back in the early 1900s, there was an artist named Vasily Kandinsky uh, who, you know, if you think about that point in time, the camera had come along. And so art, which was really kind of oriented towards realistically capturing a scene, you know, with paint, couldn't necessarily compete with the realism of the camera, right? And so a lot of people were like, where is painting going to go? And so painting actually evolved uh, into like more being about how does the artist see the world? And so you see things like cubism and pointillism and all these kinds of deconstructed realities that are really about how the artist is experiencing the world come to life. But Kandinsky was really the first to take 
the idea of painting nothing and bring that into the world. He called it non-objectivism. So how do you paint a non-object? Right? If you look at his paintings, it's these textures and colors and, and shapes and forms, but there's clearly nothing in reality that they're tethered to. And that's because he was painting his experience of music. Like for him, the color that he was, was painting was how he heard different symphonies. And so the birth of abstract art actually has its roots in someone attempting to express this kind of multi-sensory experience that they were having. And that gave birth to a whole new form and field uh, within art. So we have her multi-sensory yep. experience. We got, we're almost there. So the last two <laughs> years, I uh, was able to do some, some actual research on the relationship between color and sound. And uh, I had met Dave at that point. We were in college together and we just bonded over our love for music. And so we decided to start creating music. And during you know, senior year of college for me, um, we spent the entire year making what would become Destination Beautiful. And so that research was actually like a foundational part of what you know we were calling a multi-sensory aesthetic experience. Like why would certain colors go with certain sounds? Like was there a rationale behind that? the connection between things like loudness and brightness, you know, and, and texture and timbre and all these different, you know, ways that we use to kind of speak across the senses. Again, like a melody and a harmony where you bring them together in the right way. We've all seen like an amazing musical concert with a light show, uh, you know, that's mind blowing. And it's just like, why does that work the way that it does? And, that question was kind of the next question in this search, you know, to build this bridge towards the answer that was already there. And so for the next 10 years, you know, May was a playground for exploring these ideas. And uh, so, and what a playground it is, it's yeah. the playground is the world. And then the context is, you know, your fans and you, then you interface, you're still going to interface over the next decade with, you know, the Christian, the very reduced Christian fan at May Show. We talk, I talked to Dave about it a little bit at that. So during this next chapter here, you fully de, you know, deconstruct your faith. And that I, I heard you talk about about that was hard for your family. What, what does that section look like? Yeah. Uh, again, like it was, it was this appreciation for what I was learning that didn't feel like it was in violation of my beliefs. And yet as I was starting to bring these questions up, you know, like, do we really believe that the earth was made in 6,000 years? Like, look at all of the evidence. You, you were having these, all these esoteric thoughts and still like, yeah, but maybe the earth's 6,000 years old? Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in many ways, because that was the context that was brought up in, you know? Like, you can't know something new if you've been very protected from certain ideas. You know, this is a kind of indoctrination that happens especially in Christian schools where creationism is taught that is fundamentally setting you up for failure when it links your spiritual journey to a misunderstanding of science. Yeah. You know, to say that what we're learning about the world, we can't actually participate in that because it violates a certain understanding of our relationship to God is fundamentally flawed. Because ultimately, that's just how we have chosen to interpret that scripture, right? There is no 
instruction in the Bible that said this first few chapters of Genesis is a history text or a science text. Those things don't even exist at the time that they're written. So for us to kind of look back and apply this literalism lens to those passages is just a failure of our interpretation. And it's kind of resulted in this weird, bastardized version of spirituality that keeps you from being able to actually appreciate the details and the nuance of creation. Mm. So imagine in the early 2000s, in this case, with your line of thinking and environments that you're in and stuff like that, there's not much home. I mean, you know, there's no spiritual home for, for what you're talking about because... What does the mission statement say on the website of the two? You know what I mean? Like, yep. it's, it's pretty out there. So, you know, I imagine that time was while you were probably growing or, and deconstructing, which I, I think you can certainly do simultaneously. They're not, those are things that aren't at odds. Um, was that a hard time or, you know, and how did you, what did you find next when you started to feel, you know, meet people that were like you? When, when did that come? Absolutely. So our entire community back home was built out of our church and out of our belief system, you know? And so when we as a band are traveling around the world, we're, we're having these experiences where, you know, we're in Japan for the first time or in the Philippines or Singapore, we're like going around the world and we're having these shared experiences of art and music with people who look nothing like us, who don't even speak the language that we speak. And yet we're connecting in this very visceral, powerful way art became the context through which we got to know humanity, right? And it was this beautiful journey of suddenly becoming familiar with difference, you know, to encounter, you know, people somewhere completely different in the world whose story, whose culture, whose language is completely different, and yet to have this undeniable resonance and this this sense of camaraderie and shared humanity it just expanded the way I saw myself and, and the power of music. And we're all experiencing that, right? So there's like five of us in this band going around the world, having our preconceptions of reality and of the, the box and the ceiling we've lived under just kind of shattered and broken. And the more we read, the more we experienced, it was like the deeper we went and the deeper we wanted to go. But that depth... um wasn't welcome back home. And so it became a very lonely place. And when you're asking questions inside, but you don't feel like you can ask them out loud, then that's a recipe for a an problem. explosion. Absolutely. Yeah. Re- repression of anything. I mean, it's, yeah, it, I mean, it seems kind of obvious and mm-hmm. it, it's just worth repeating unlimited about it's okay to question things and like yeah. to verbalize, I mean, to verbalize it is a big step. Because you have to put it into words, and That's then right. there's the liability of what those words then can mean back to you. Absolutely. So, but what a big step that is. So push yourself to try to verbalize. Just, you know, if you, if you feel something, that's how you make these connections with other people, is as you begin to find a safe place and then be able to verbalize it and, and, and kind of move through that. When did you find people um, that you could connect with that were maybe emerging on similar journeys that then converge? Well, the beautiful thing about being in a band is it really is a brotherhood. So I found that with my bandmates. Like, I wasn't alone in these questions. Like, we were all having these conversations together. We were reading things and sharing ideas. And and ultimately, yeah, we kind of went through a version of this journey very much together. And we all had individual, you know, details to it. But we all 
kind of realized the limitations that we were brought up under and couldn't reconcile it anymore. And we really didn't have people to talk to back home about this stuff and the way that we could be completely vulnerable. And so we found uh, that camaraderie in each other. And then, and again, so the 2000s and stuff like that, it's like, it's hard. The internet didn't have as sophisticated podcasts and stuff like that. But then in the, in recent years, you've kind of found another community. You're friends with buddies with science. Mike, tell me about that. Yeah. yeah I, I actually met Mike at uh, Sundance about four or five years ago. And, um, you know, this was just as the liturgist podcast was, was becoming a thing. And I just had such a good time you know, being able to talk about this intersectionality of scientific questions and philosophy and cosmology and spirituality and have no limits in our conversation. And it was just such a, a liberating experience to kind of be able to go there um, and, and feel like, yeah, this is, you know, this is the journey. And to feel that same sense of permission here within this community, I think, is probably why we're all here. It's like there's a space here you guys have created where it's okay to let your guard down and ask questions about the deepest things in our lives. You know, these things matter. And so as much as the questions do start internally, I guess they really get sharpened and become clearer when you're able to address them in community. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that people going through deconstruction, if I could share anything with somebody in that process, it would be that there is community on the other side of this, that the loneliness that you're feeling in that moment isn't permanent. But any new life comes at the expense of the previous container. We are talking a little bit about this yesterday. It's like Mm -hmm. when the seed breaks, that's when the sprout emerges, right? So you can't have that new life, that new growth, without the death of the previous container. Sacrifice is is language there. It's moving into unknown. That's what faith is required to do. You know what I mean? Like those are all the things that we should do. And the news on the other side is you can, then you eventually, you go, oh yeah, Jacob, we... Remember, like, but okay, yeah, you've been off on this journey. Okay, I get it. And we're back, you know, and you find more people that have done more development and that reinforces and new com- communities and spaces can certainly emerge if you keep doing that work and you continue to do so. I want to talk about one more thing here and, and we can see if we have some questions, but you still continue um, to investigate and chase and think about and do research on the thing from the, the experience when you're 17, which again, I say so as a rudderless person like me, mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing. You still are doing that one thing and it's taking you to higher and higher levels. Um, and so you're working, you're doing the art stuff with and, and neuroscience, but then also you are into the psychedelic world. Yeah. How does so, that play in? So um, the neuroscientist that I work with is interested in the big questions around human perception. What does it mean to be a brain and a body. Like how does a brain know it's in a body? What is our conscious experience? Um, and he studies that through perception and he created a lab, uh, that uses art and immersive art in particular, things like virtual reality, which is, um, you know, an area that I've done a deep dive in over the last four or five years. 
to create a context for experiments, right? And the things that we're interested in is what's happening in the brain when you're experiencing awe and wonder, and that's hard to actually create in a lab setting. Like most lab technicians don't know how to manifest art <laughs> in awe, right? And so that's where having the experience as, a, as an artist to like facilitate that kind of space, let someone have this experience, but we're also able to study like what's happening. Right? And so one of his theories is that when we're creating a context for awe, uh, that there's something specific happening in the brain. It's called a neural signature. And so a neural signature for awe um, is something that science hasn't found yet. And so over the last 10 months or so, we've been doing uh, a project with Cirque du Soleil. And we put over 600 people into EEGs during a Cirque performance and have actually uncovered this neural signature so Bo Lotto is the, uh, the neuroscientist's name. He's going to be giving his third main stage TED Talk uh, this April, and he's going to be announcing the neural signature for awe. And the way they're doing it is, is actually really special. Cirque is building a custom show around his talk. Wow. And they're going to have somebody on stage in EEG, and as that person enters awe, Bo will be able to kind of show what's happening in the brain at that time. And so it's, it's amazing, actually. It's really, really special. What has been really surprising is that while you can create that with art, right, and specifically like the kinds of immersive art experiences that we've been designing, you can also create an almost identical awe signature structure with psychedelics. And so he's been studying kind of this, this point of intersection between you know, awe that is produced through like a mystical experience, awe that is, you know, manifest through artistic experience, and then awe that's mm -hmm. manifest through psychedelic experience. And yeah, so that's really fascinating because, you know, one of the things that we, you know, criticize about youth group culture and all this, and we people talk about worship music, is, oh, they're using the music and the lights and the religious imagery to cause you to have this experience. That's such bullshit kind of a thing. But then there's psychedelics, and there's the experience that you had. So, I mean, which which ones of those are – is any of it real? Like, that starts to kind of unravel when you think, you know, is there a God molecule? Is that all – is that – I mean, is that where this is headed? This is such a good question, and I would actually bring us back to art to answer it. So if you think about the way that any of the arts work, they're all combinatorial, meaning – that we combine notes to make music or we combine words to tell stories or poems. There's not a single note that holds the music. There's not a single word that holds the meaning of the story or the, the poem. It's like how they are connected to each other that lets that other level emerge, right? There's not a note that holds your favorite song. It's like how that note is connected to the other notes. Our, our brain, our, our consciousness is actually very similar. You know, there's not a neuron that holds the Jacob, right? It's how 86 billion neurons are connected in different ways because my body is picking up energy, like sound energy is acoustic, you know, moving molecules in the air, like light is this really thin part of the, the electromagnetic spectrum that we experience as color, you know, fragrance and taste are chemical. And so it's the shape of different molecules that enter our brain. And it's kind of like a little musical note that goes through. And that 
that over time compounds and becomes, in a sense, the music of our consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so in all of these different ways, in order to get to the music level, the notes have to be connected, right? And so for, for me to have an experience like the one I had at 17 was basically like getting a whole different kind of music but not knowing anything about music theory or how, you know, I just found myself in a symphony and I wanted to learn how to, to sing. And so, you know, the question comes out, well, that's artificial, the drugs or whatever, but what's not artificial in the experience you have and your access to another layer of thinking, you know, I mean, that you kind of get into that territory, you know, if we, we think of the church music as manipulative. So, and here's a molecule you can ingest that can do something really similar. So, yeah, I would, the way I would answer that, I guess, is that, you know, it is an answer. And if you're not asking the question, then it won't, it won't mean much. But with this molecule, I can guarantee, you know, within about an hour and a half, you're going to be experiencing something like you've never experienced before. And it's, you know, it's impossible not to have that experience. And, and we're talking I, about LSD and DMT. Are the are yeah, those the, are the primary ones that I work with. Yeah, and you've and you've done these. You've done these experiences yeah. how many times? Um, so I had my first experience with psychedelics when I was thirty-five. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, at this point, it's probably been thirty or forty times. Wow. But uh, my wife and I actually facilitate those journeys. Um, and we actually do that with the lab. So there's an exploration of the neuroscience behind these journeys. And I feel like as people are curious about this kind of stuff, they really don't have a place to turn. Um, and so for me, because things like dosage and purity of, of the, you know, of the molecule are so important, um, I'd like to actually create a context where that can safely be explored and where a lot of the worries that people have about a first time experience actually completely you know, we we've addressed and we've created a context for a very safe you know experience. I mean and so to me all this just circles back it's amazing that you're still on the same thing chasing the same thing and have that long term lifelong focus but it's really fascinating and it was re- the most fascinating about it is it's just barely knocking on the door of what are we going to figure out and learn about the brain and people? I mean, it's going to, it's going to rock the Christian. It's going to rock everything. It's going to fundamentally rock mental health, for instance. I think once we start to understand, you know, mental health is a, one of our biggest problems, but we're not super advanced about what to do with it. And we don't understand this brain thing. Oh, we're a very archaic level. So this is the, all this stuff's going yeah. to make some connections and do some real stuff. That's amazing. I mean, it's, it's just exciting to hear about in that way. Well, to bring it all full circle, um, on Monday, uh, we're starting trials actually at the Houston Medical Center with the Children's Hospital to have these musical, virtual reality, haptic vibration, fragrance experiences uh, become a part of um, end of life care for kids dealing with terminal wow. illnesses. And so we're going to be testing how those experiences actually help them prepare uh, for the end, how that actually alleviates pain and how art and the future of art is actually medicine. 
That's exciting. That means there'll be lots for people like us to do in the future, hopefully. Exactly. In virtual environments and such. Yeah, that's right yeah. in my alley, man. I, this is it's, it's terrific to get to kind of just explore this with you. Jacob, thank you so much. If they can find you online, say hey to you here. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. Thanks.